G'day humans and Merry Christmas from the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. What a year! I had a great year. I mean, I wouldn't say great. Look, in comparison to all of the years in uh, my life, it's been busy and stressful, uh, but also very fulfilling. I hope yours has. In comparison to the last three years, though, what a cracker. Because you're coming off a very low bar with your uh, your 2020s through 2022s, aren't you? Uh, we had bushfires, horrendous bushfires in Australia, uh, 2019 to 2020. And then we had uh, COVID, uh, 2020 to 2021. And then horrendous floods, 2021 to 2022. So welcome to climate chaos. But now a respite. And it's summer in Australia. So if you're listening to this and it's freezing cold outside... I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for your poor life choices, really, living in a place that gets very, very cold. No, the Christmas season is wonderful and beautiful, and a little part of me is jealous of you that you get to trudge through snow with a cold nose and cold ears and look at little Santas in windows of stores and so on. It's quite romantic as well. I hope you had a lovely lovely Christmas, and I hope you're looking forward to a new year. Uh, Well, to the possibilities of the new year, not just to a generic new year, because there is a lot that we can look forward to in 2023. I got a good feeling about it. Uh, I reckon we're uh, I reckon we're on track for a goodie. We've had a couple of couple of losers and now we're going to get doozy. And it's even if you don't really necessarily believe that in your heart of hearts, it's worth treating it as if it were so in case it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you have like a new year's resolution of some kind? You know what? I'm going to talk about that in the next episode because I have a thing to say about it. Uh, to now I just want to get straight into the content because what we're doing this week and for the next two weeks is bringing you the best episodes of the year. And when we thought about doing this, we thought, oh, we don't want to just sort of, you know, throw together some, oh, here are some clips from previous episodes. Nobody wants to just hear previous episode clips, my producer said. And then I said, well, if they're the very, very best bits of the best conversations that I've had through the entire year, wouldn't I sort of only want to hear that? I mean, don't I kind of uh, want the boring bits to be taken out and the very, very best bits to be stitched together? Uh, so we're bringing you three episodes over the next three weeks that are by no means afterthoughts and are really good. As usual, you'll hear the entire thing if you are a member of our newsletter on Substack. Uh, If not, then you won't get the entire episode. You will get most of it. It'll still be fine. But if you haven't registered on Substack and gotten your own unique dedicated podcast feed, which is free, uh, then uh, uh, maybe you're not understanding how simple it is or something, or there's there's some other blockage. Either way hop online right now. It helps us pull your phone out of your pocket and just go to Uncomfortable Conversations at Substack. Uncomfortable Conversations, in other words. Just Google Uncomfortable Conversations Substack. If that's too long for you, if that's too many letters, you're like, oh, I'm going to spend all day typing. What is it? U-N-C. Oh, I give up. I'm too lazy. It's, oh, I'm too fat from Christmas and it's almost New Year's. I can't type uncomfortable. Then you could type Zeps Substack. That probably gets you there. S Z. EPS, but how do I spell it? He used to spell it without an S. And then I don't know how many P's there are. Oh, I need to lie down. Just pull your phone out and do it. And all you, I, I don't know if you think it's complicated to do or something, but you literally just put in your email address and then that's it. You don't have to sign up with a card or anything like that. I'm so grateful to those of you who did and many people, many, many people have. 
Um, but you can select a free subscription plan and you don't have to worry about whether or not you want to pay for bonus content until February because until the end of January, we're giving everything away for free. Anyway, so that's the that's the pitch. That's the spiel. You are supporting independent media and you're supporting me if you sign up, even if you don't pay any money. So do it now because then in a month's time, you'll be like, oh, I would have liked to have gotten all that free content and all those bonus episodes and all of the full duration podcasts while they were free because now he's asking me to pay $6.99 a month and I'd rather not. Well, you don't have to now and you won't have to until February. And it's not going to like auto-trigger somehow. I'm not going to trick you into it. I'm going to be like, ah, ha, ha, now that I've got you, your email address, I'm going to be like a sniveling Australian Jew who's going to steal your credit card information. It's not going to happen automatically. So anyway, you should be signed up. This episode, three of my favorite people I've spoken to, Tim Urban is, I think it's my favorite all-time episode. It's right up there of the show. Uh, he has a pod, He has a website called Wait But Why, which is, he writes and illustrates, which is sort of like little cartoons that deal with the most profound questions of existence. He has a TED talk about procrastination, which if you haven't seen, you must see. It is so good. Again, the Google machine, you know, that same Google machine that you're using to subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations, uh, dot substack dot something. Um, oh, and by the way, if you if you have subscribed, if you enter your email and you're still hearing uh, hearing the normal, regular, old feed that doesn't have the full episodes and all of the bonus content, if think if something is still fading out on you, for example, then you have to go to uncomfortable uncomfortable conversations dot substack dot com slash listen slash listen and that will generate your own unique like every single individual will have their own unique podcast link it's super super cool and super super easy so anyway tim urban's got this great website which you should find you should find his talk on procrastination uh so that's awesome after that clementine ford who is probably australia's most important feminist of her era i mean i suppose you've got your jermaine greers and so on who are banging around in the uk doing what they do but Clementine is fiery. She is ferociously intelligent and ferocious in her temperament as well. And she and I had some disagreements about sexism and how best to approach the liberation of uh, of the female sex. And then the third uh, guest that you have today is Malcolm Turnbull, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. A fascinating chat with him as well. Uh, again, if you're a Substack subscriber to Uncomfortable Conversations, even if you're not paying anything, you'll get the entire episode on your personalized pod, podcast uh, RSS feed which sounds more complicated than it is. It'll literally take you three or four minutes to sign up to. Uh, if you're still on the old feed, then that's totally fine. You'll continue to get everything that you always uh, used to get. But uh, this particular episode is uh, one of the episodes per week that is uh, intended for premium uh, subscribers. So be sure to subscribe to hear all of it. Uh, in just a couple of days, you'll get exactly the same episode as everybody else. We'll all get the same thing. And that will be a New Year's Ask Me Anything. I put out the call for some questions on social media and i've got some real doozies so look forward to that the other benefit of being a subscriber is you don't get any ads uh whereas on the regular old feed you get ads i hope you had a wonderful uh christmas i hope you have a fantastic new year i will speak with you just before the new year for the ask me anything this is the first of the next three weeks highlights best of uncomfortable conversations Why were you not a philosopher, Tim? What did you want to do when you were younger? 
Uh, I, I, I wanted to do something create. I wanted to make things, you know, out of, you know, create things. And so uh, specifically like in the arts more than in, I wanted to, you know, either write music or write books or write, you know, or, you know, writing your music, something like that. I wanted to make stuff. And beyond that, I didn't know if I wanted to be doing comedy or, you know, fiction, serious stuff, or, you know, uh, then I started blogging and I realized that was fun. So I, I don't know. I, I didn't have um, a, a, a very specific direction other than I, I knew I, I wanted some kind of job uh, mm. making something in the arts. Well, it's amazing that we live in a world where you're able to, and, and congratulations for having found the niche where you can actually express this, like, kind of, you know, all the stuff that that I remember talking about lying on my back, smoking a joint at the age of 15, gazing at the stars, like is basically your job. Well, to, to, I actually think of it as like, there's, there's uh, a couple categories. That's one. And then the other one that is like, is like why we procrastinate. It's like, it's like, it's like yeah. observing humans and what the hell's, I guess, which is also maybe part of that. That also maybe comes out in the 2 a.m. I think so. Yeah, it, it, it does. Session, it yeah. does come out there as well. It doesn't have to be about the stars. I mean, another uh, the the other thing that I've wanted to touch on uh, with you, which uh, which I love, is is the 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 weird way in which we see ourselves situated in history. You had a, a blog post at the beginning of this decade. Uh, on the 1st of January 2020, where you were talking about, like, we're, we basically now live in the future because we're in the 2020s. And, you know, we are now, we are now further away from World War II than World War II was from the Civil War. And how counterintuitive that is. And you go through a bunch of, of these, like, that, you know, when, if World War II was starting today, then World War I would feel as long ago as 9-11 does. So not yeah. that, not that long ago, <laughs> and yeah, the, the World War II people must have been like, no fucking way, really, absolutely, We're doing exactly. this again, it was really recent, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're going, I mean, that's why some historians argue that they they were essentially one giant war, World War One and World War Two, with an interlude in in the middle. Um, and the idea yeah, that World War Two was kind of like re- revenge of like you know revenge, yeah, Empire was, Strike, the Empire Strikes Back, exactly. It was settling settling scores that that uh, right. that Versailles failed to resolve. Um, yeah. And then, and you also point out that, like in 2020, Y2K was closer to the 1970s than to today. And or, or another one is uh, the like all these 1994 movies, Jurassic Park and The Lion King. Um, the you know these movies were they came out closer to the moon landing than they did to today. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, because we all remember that those don't seem that long ago, but it's especially that one's especially for people who were born, you know, after the moon landing. So the moon landing feels ancient history to them. Uh, and but they they clearly remember those 90s movies in their childhood, you know. And or, and if you're if you were 35 in 2020, you were born closer to the 1940s than to today. You were born in 1985. Yeah. So 1985, 35 years before that was the 40s, 35 years after that, 2020. And, and another amazing one you point out is 60 years. If you're 60 or older, then you're born closer to the 1800s than to today. Yeah. Also, the oldest people in the world were born closer to the George Washington administration than they were to today. 
Um, <laughs> and, and, and wait, so that one was true. Let me think if it's still true. I guess it's he he, he finished in ninety seven. Look, eight, we can just put ourselves in the shoes of your twenty twenty blog. Yeah, post. no, it is. It's the, the oldest Americans were were born closer to the Washington administration than to the uh, Biden administration. The, the reason I like these is because each one is a little mind blowing for whatever reason, but it also just puts you're like, okay, U.S. history is not that old. No, it's, you know, absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, my uh, I uh, one thing that got more of a reaction on Twitter than almost anything I've ever said was when I pointed out I was on Joe. I used to do Joe Rogan's show. I did it about six times when I was living in the states. And needless to say, that has a huge audience. So anything you say, you know, riles people up in one way or another. But what was gratifying was not that everybody was jumping down my throat for saying something they disagreed with, but that I was on his show shortly after my grandmother died and she died on the eve of her hundredth birthday in New Zealand. Wow. And shortly afterwards, I was in Athens visiting a, a mate of mine, a buddy who lives in, um, who lives in Athens. And I was wandering around the, the Agora and like the, you know, the Colosseum and all this stuff. And I thought this stuff is 4,000 years old. My grandma was a hundred it's only 40 nanas that democracy and like modern civilization was born in ancient Greece. Like, I think if you sort of shook me awake in the middle of the night and was like, like, how old is democracy? Like how, how many of your grandmother's lifespans were there? I'd be like a few thousand. Yeah. I wouldn't think it was 40 of my grandmother's lifespans. And that takes you all the way back back there i mean it comes back well, to what you were saying earlier about i, I love that one writing and stuff like it's really recent you could also say that it's about your 500th great-grandparent um that um your 500th great-grandparent lived in a world with only hunter-gatherers anywhere so with and that's not full that's not full nanas minutes. that's not what you mean 500 greats Yes, that's yes. Your yeah. your your great 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 to the five hundredth right. grandmother lived right. in a world where she was for sure a gatherer because every single woman on the world or every single person in the world was a hunter gatherer, um, and uh, and um, yeah. So that's not full manners. That's not full manners. That's that's twenty five year generation. So that's actually yeah, you could right. divide that by four to get the number of full nanas. But um, but that's uh, so if you it's you know it seems like a lot, but it's like. You, you go back there and those and so every single thing that we call civilization has just happened in 500 generations and and you know and again yeah, or a hundred of my nana's nana's uh, lifespans okay I, I have a cra i have a crazier one um which is that if you because okay so this is there's two things going on what we're doing here is showing how recent um how, how not you know humans are pretty new pretty damn new and civilization is really new but I can, but you can get way more mind blown when you think about, I like to think about, uh, if, if you, if you made a, wrote a book detailing the history of humanity, um, and you made every page 200 years. Um, so just say it's an 800 page book, you know, and, and give or take that, that would take us to 160,000 years back, something like that. Um, which is about the length of human history, depending on which person you talk to. So, 800 pages takes us from then to today. Every page is 200 years. You're reading that book and it's almost all the same. You are bored for almost that entire book reading about hunter-gatherers. <laughs> it's only the last, you know, um, the last 100 pages, uh, sorry, the last like uh, 50 pages that you get to 
anything beyond hunter gatherers. Mm. And it's only the last, uh, it's, it's, if you think about, uh, hold on, let me just pull up. I actually have, uh, I have this Take your time. somewhere where I can make it, I can get, I can be totally accurate here. Okay. All right. So, um, it is, uh, what have we got? 200, 200 years per page. Did you 200 say? years per page. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, so, so Australia, it's, it's, Australia is settled, <laughs> is settled yeah. on the final page. Yeah. Well, oh, yes, exactly. So, so now, but, but, but just go back to 50 pages out of the 850. So you get to page 750. You're super bored. Right. Right. Because you've just been literally reading about the gatherers and you're holding it's like it's like the the what all that's left is basically like the epilogue, the last chapter. And you're you finally get to early cities and agriculture. That goes on for 25 pages until page 750, 775. Mm-hmm. So now you're really at the end here and you get to recorded history. It's like epilogue colon recorded history, you know, and it's like, so now you're in the last 25 pages. You're, you know, you can feel like, oh, I'm just about done with this book. You're at recorded history. Um, you, you go back, uh, uh, to 12 pages and you're at Buddha is 12 pages ago. It's page, it's page, uh, uh, 788, you know, uh, Jesus is like page 791. Um, and, and so, you know, AD is only 10 pages of the book, but the crazy thing to me is the last page. Um, so the U S by the way, is only, is only, is only about a page old. It got, it got started at the end of page 790. Yeah. About the same, uh, same, same age. You know, Australia was settled because the, the Brits could no longer send their, their, their chattel human beings to North America because of North, the North American, because of the revolution. So that they they sent out expeditions to find another spot to send uh, to send undesirables. That's why the United States and Australia are about the same age. You don't hear the word Australia till page eight hundred, um, and um, yeah. And so I, right. so 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 actually, um, I, just one correction is I, I was doing the the thing I the, the thing I laid out is two fifty years per page. Okay. okay so cool. anyway, so anyway, the last page goes back to seven seventy. If you think about it, the first seven hundred ninety nine pages of that book. Um, the power was out. There was no electricity. And all that electricity was an, is a page 800 phenomenon. The first 799 pages of that book, um, we don't use any fossil fuels. We just you know have wind and water and things like that. And fossil fuel era is an entirely 800, page 800 phenomenon. For the first 799 pages, we get around with horse and sailboat. Um, in page 800, we have cars and airplanes and rockets. Uh, the, for communication, the first 799 pages we have for most of it just oral, and then eventually you have you know writing in letters. You can write a letter to someone. Uh, the, the television, the phone, all of this is a page 800 phenomenon. So when you you think about um, how many things came out on page 800 that are truly nothing like the rest of the book, it makes you. It, so this is again like a little bit like how it's um, it's an instinct to say we must not be the only life because that seems arrogant. It's also an instinct to think our time is special. It's an instinct to think it's arrogant. To say our time is special. It feels naive to say, oh, our time is special because it feels like everyone must say that. But actually, mm. when you think of it this way, page 800 is truly special in, in so many metrics. It is truly unlike anything before. It would blow the minds of someone on any page before in a way that no other page would, would blow anyone's mind nearly as much. So if you think about what that means, but again, we're talking about, you, you mentioned nonlinear. We are a crazy exponential situation going on here. What the hell is going on on page 801? 
Mm. And I'll tell you why this scares me is that page 800 was better than all the other pages in so many ways. It was more prosperous in so many ways. There was infant mortality was the lowest ever. Life expectancy was the highest ever. Um, just if you think about the humanity that, that, you know, that, that came out after the enlightenment, the page 800 for, on an aggregate was, you know, medicine, antibiotics, you know, crazy, amazing progress, cars and planes and, um, and, and, and all of this. It was better. The good was better than all the other goods, but the bad of paid age 800 was arguably worse than any bad before. We had the mm. largest genocide, the biggest wars. We have something like climate change. There's no, never been any kind of existential threat like on that level and any other page. So the bad is getting worse and the, and the good is getting better. So the amplitude of this kind of sign graph is getting higher on the top and the bottom. And the problem with that is the good can get as good as you. So the page 801, you can just imagine the kind of good we can get to, the kind of unbelievable, magical utopia progress we can get to. But if the bad gets too low, this is what I was talking about with the great filter. If the bad gets too low and suddenly now any one person can create a Holocaust level genocide with, you know, with the chemicals in their fridge uh, and, you know, you know, then it's over. You know, the bad hits the mm. certain level, it hits a tripwire and the whole experiment's over. So I mean, this is scary. Not only, uh, I'm just thinking through, the, the, that final page, that final 250 years out of that 200,000-year book, I mean, you mentioned the Holocaust. That's in the final third of the page. The, yes. the space age is the final quarter of the page. And the internet is the bottom, like 25 years is one-tenth. So like the final, the bottom 10% of the of the final page of the 800 page book is the internet era yeah i mean cl climate change you really only got bad in the last few lines of the book the, la the yep. last few lines of the page right um yes because exponential progress is nuts um if you if you transported someone from any page to the next page i mean if you the the, the later in the book you are the more mind-blown they be so you transport someone from page 232 to 233 maybe that tree that they're used to is a little taller uh, you know, maybe someone developed a new way to tie the, the arrow to your spear, to tie the, the spearhead. I mean, barely anything is different, right? But if you yeah. get to, you know, if you get to, you know, someone in uh, the year two, you know, if you get to Alexander the Great and you transport him to the Roman Empire, he'd be pretty mind blown. Um, yeah. But nothing is like transporting someone from page 799 to page 800. It's and amazing. even within page 800. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I mean, page seven hundred forty-three is basically the same as page three hundred forty-seven. Is basically exactly page one hundred nineteen. I have a metric called the a die progress unit because if you if you brought I always think if you brought George Washington to today, he, the, 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 show him everything, he would die out of shock. And so the question is, how far do you have to go in the future to die out of shock? That's a die progress unit, a <laughs> DPU. And so the the DPUs used to take forever. You could transport someone 100 pages from page 200 to 300, and you're not going to kill them from yeah. shock. They, 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 no, they'd be right? like, wow, that ship is, uh, that's exactly. a world ship. Exactly. There might be a new kind of flower that, that that's developed in this area, right? So, but but as you go through the book, the DPUs get shorter and shorter until you get to just one page. And so the question is for us, the DPU might be only a few lines, right? 2060 mm. might legit kill us from shock the way that, it, that today would kill George Washington from shock. Maybe, or maybe and, there's, all, sorry, I mean, I'm just thinking like people like Tyler Cowan also have this idea that like there was a lot of low hanging fruit that got, that exploded in the past century. And we're kind of, uh, we're we're basically benefiting from the enormous productivity gains, not just economically, but in terms of health outcomes and technology that took us from the way we lived in the 1880s to the way we live in the 1980s. But after that, you know, with the exception of the internet, there's not a lot 
left. Do you think that's a, a fallacious end of history? You know, my, uh, my, my uninformed intuition is that, no, it's going to keep getting, no, there's S curves, you know? So like it, it goes, it's just, progress doesn't just go straight up in an exponential curve. It, it goes up in like S's where it kind of it shoots up. And then when there's a new paradigm, like, you know, the iPhone comes out and the internet and there's all this crazy progress and then it kind of matures. And I feel like we're in one of those now where, you know, it used to be that every year there was something new. There was the I Facebook and then the iPhone and then, you know, these revolutionary things. And I think that the S curve is kind of, um, you know, it's, it's now getting flatter, but then there's another S curve coming. And I don't know what it is. It can be, there's so many, you mean an, it's, it's an S on its side, right? So, yeah. I mean, um, no, I mean, it's like an S uh, it's, 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 uh, it's basically picture the curve is, um, you know, going up, but not at huge slope. And then it starts getting super steep. Right. And then it kind of levels out. Right. So that's one S and then picture. Now it starts getting steep again. Now you're in another S you see that. So it kind right. of goes up in, in waves. And, and, and if you step back and zoom out, it looks like one big exponential curve. But if you zoom in at any given point, you might be on one part of the S and it might feel like things are slowing down. But the reason I, I disagree with Cowan in this, I see his, I see his points. And I'm sure if you take a step back, there's some ways to look at it and say, oh no, this is, you know, maybe there's a big S that we just got to the top of, and now it's going to be a while. But th there's so many candidates for things that would just dramatically, that would be as big a deal of the internet, if not bigger. There's brain machine interfaces. We mm. might all have a machine, uh, you know, a BMI in our heads in 20, 30, 50 years that we can think to each other. I mean, that's, that's like the last update there was language. Then the next, you know, if you brought a, a caveman here from 100,000 years ago, he'd be blown away by everything except the way we talk. He'd be like, you know, you two people in a field are just with no technology on them, just having a chat. He'd be like, wait, that's how we do it. You're just mm. talking. And he'd be like, you, you do that the way we do it, right? So that, this could be an update to that where you, now you yeah. think to each other, right? So that's crazy. I mean, even and then before you get artificial to... intelligence in computers, exactly. that revolutionizes exactly. everything, robotics, then there's even energy, just like self-driving cars. We mastered fusion, you know, and, and if energy was just effectively unlimited, we didn't have to worry about conserving energy. That would be equally transformative. There's a lot. How about cry cryonics, where you can pause someone and, and, mm. and basically transport them to a hospital in the future? So you pause someone before they die, and it retains their, or right after they, 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 quote, die by our standards, but they're savable for by future standards. And then you, in the future, um, you revive them and you can totally fix them and give them, you know, artificial organs. And so to me, you know, life extension stuff, some of these, if you listen to this podcast in 50 years, will be laughable because nothing will have changed. Um, but okay, here's one. I mean, how many great leaps for all of life can you count on one hand? Like, you know, you could say, like I said, Beginning of life, simple cell to single, uh, complex cell, complex cell to multi cell, multi cell to, uh, you know, you have you know, uh, ocean animal to land animal. On that same list, it has to be one planet to two, to multi planets for not just for humans for the whole species. That is a massive, like, leap. That's just yeah, a crazy leap that can happen in the twenty twenties. Like we, we, in the 2030s, like we are going to witness one of the great leaps for all of life. So there's too many of those things for me to say, yeah, I think like 2050 <laughs> will be totally normal to us. Maybe mm. just a little cooler. The phones will be cooler. No, 2050 to me, I think will be utterly mind blowing. If you just and went what's there amazing now. Is, yeah. What's amazing is we'll probably be there. Touch wood. Like, you know, we'll probably see it. And uh, my kids, I think we're going to lots of wood through the 22nd century. There's kids today. Uh, even without life extension technology, that will experience the 22nd century. And we might too. 
I mean, mm. the human body is just a is just a physical object made of atoms, and and it's a certain arrangement of atoms that makes you you and your brain. There's no, there's no reason that advanced enough AI can't figure out how to kind of preserve that to back it up. Sure, I mean um, that that's a that's a. a yeah, that's a possibility, but it's not likely. But what is certain is that the kids who are being born, the babies who are being born today, the vast majority of them will see the 22nd century. Yeah. Even if, they, we, don't do anything, s- even if we don't do anything amazing. I, I, by which I would just mean we'll survive past 2100. Right. It, it, exactly. Unless it's this awful dystopian thing where the bads yeah. get worse. And the, the, we, we, sur- we, we survive the bads on page 800, but we will not survive the bads on page 801. If that's, that's one storyline, that would be unfortunate. And it's totally plausible. What storyline you know, do you... I'll, I wanna, I, you've given me lots of your time, so I'll, I'll wrap it up here. But let's wrap up with your sort of big picture prognostication. Like if you were a betting man, what, 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 you, what will become of us, Tim? Ah. Uh, Man, see, I, I, on one hand, I want to feel optimistic because we are a survival species, you know, and we we have a good track record of survival, even if it's, you know, a lot of catastrophes along the way. But the question is, at some point, you know, as you said, the U.S. isn't that old. It's a new experiment. Uh, humanity is, is civilization isn't that old, especially at the rate things are going. So it also feels like looking at the past and saying, hey, we've always been OK, so we should be OK in the future. That might not be good logic. It might be in. When you're on an exponential curve, the future might not resemble the past at all. So honestly, I, I, I can't say I feel confidently optimistic or pessimistic. I, I will say that that means that I also don't feel confidently pessimistic. I, I, I feel um, truly, un, I, I feel like a huge question mark about what's going to happen. Um, I, I think if I had to lean, I would say optimism because I just am an optimist as a human, but I don't have really good. I, I couldn't argue. I couldn't debate someone and feel like I won that one. If they were a pessimist. Um, I, I think uh, the problem for us is that our expon- our technology is exponential, but our wisdom is cyclical. You know, if you look back, um, you know, like, Oh, the, uh, the Salem witches, we're so much smarter than them. It's like, well, we know more than them, but the way they're behaving is a lot of what I see on Twitter. And, and, and that was also a downswing maybe. And then there was an era, you know, in ancient Greece when they were more humane than people 800 years later. And it seems like w- that we, unfortunately wisdom does not going up exponentially. And that's a problem because the more technology gives us, you know, exponentially more power. But if we're not getting wiser, then that's a species that is in, I'm scared of that species having too much power and um, that's interesting yeah and so, if you're, uh, yeah i'm scared your wisdom, I, I, <laughs> if you go through periods where your wisdom peaks and then your wisdom troughs and there's a kind of a sine curve of wisdom over civilizations over history then as the technology gets bigger and bigger the peaks become more uh, the stakes get higher and the troughs get more damaging and maybe there comes a point at which your technology is is so powerful that you can't survive one of the troughs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The the big troughs are, uh, I think, the 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 deal breaker here. So the and the question is, you know, look, we built, we had the the enlightenment and and built laws and and liberal values and stuff, which is a way of containing our worst nature. We have a history of being very clever recently, especially at 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 at, at kind of outsmarting the primates, right? And the question is, can we continue to do it? You know, maybe as we get the, as the goods get better, we get really powerful ways of outsmarting the primates and keeping ourselves safe from, from ourselves. Um, I'm certainly not scared of asteroids or other animals or, you know, the moment aliens, I'm scared of us. And, um, and so, you know, can we, uh, 
can we can yeah can can uh, can can we do what we did with uh, kind of the enlightenment on a much more intense scale you know for for whatever the future is going to bring and I, I hope we do i hope we do the too, utopia <laughs> honestly if we can you know th this world would seem like a utopia to someone from the year 200 and yeah, i think that I mean, even in our lives we're headed for what would seem like a utopia for us if we don't fuck it up that was Tim Urban on an earlier episode of the show. Up next, the firebrand feminist Clementine Ford. You know, you're certainly not shy about making your opinion known, but sometimes when I read you, I think this is someone who lives in a world in which the the uh, the dominant narrative and the dominant like cultural forces just are not the ones that I see. Like I don't see. Mm. There's a. I was listening to. Um, I actually listened to your first book before over the weekend because I hadn't read it before. Uh, Fight like a girl, and I thought it was fascinating. But like, there's a, a piece in it. I just want to play you the, mm -hmm. this, which is you articulating what the what the kind of power structures and the and the dominant narrative sounds sounds like to you. How many times have you heard or seen someone dismiss a woman's opinion by calling her ugly, by calling her a slut? A dumb cunt. A stupid fucking bitch who needs to get a decent dick up her. An irrational man-hating feminazi with daddy issues who demonises men because she's upset none of them find her attractive. A dog, a mutt, a hog, a useless lump, too old, too dried up, too aggressive, too shrill, too angry for anyone to take seriously. A joke. Like, the question is, how many times have I heard that? <laughs> I heard that and I was like... Mm, never? Like, I've never heard mm. that as the main... I've never heard that as a position that's put forward by a guy that hasn't been pushed back on vehemently and instantly by all the other guys in the room. You should ask some women whether or not they've ever heard that. Yeah. Because I think that I mean, I, I don't, I don't that... doubt it, but, but the, isn't the question whether or not... I mean, I can not... tell you that I've... I've I, and I'm not exaggerating at all. All of those things have been said to me this week by numerous people. Even even the mutt. I've got I could send you a screenshot, Josh. I mean, that's appalling. But this is the thing is that we have different perspectives of the world because we move through the world differently. And I move through through the world equally as you with a lot of privilege. And I still hear all those things. From whom? Well, from men mainly, but from women too, who you know, have kind of young women, especially. But like, is it use that language? Is it men who are trolling you on Twitter, or is it human beings who? You're I don't use with? Twitter anymore. Right. Um, well, look, it's. I would say that it's men from all different kinds of demographics. I've had, you know, issues with students, like public and private school boys. Um, you know, prior to pre-pandemic. I would always get a little influx of trolling from students whose schools I'd been to speak at. And I, it's not like I went into those schools and said, look at all you boys, you're all piece of shit. Like <laughs> one school I literally just talked about, like the presentation I gave was about gender inequality in the media. And I went through and like shared a bunch of statistics around Hollywood and, um, um, you know, and a lot of them were kind of shared from the Gina Davis Institute on, um, sorry, the Gender Institute on in media. Um, and even after that, you know, I was having boys writing to me and calling me a cunt and um, making fun. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of water off a duck's back, but it is reflective of, of this way in which, particularly, I suppose, when you put yourself out into the world like I do, that 
people who are uncomfortable with what you're saying but lack the ability to articulate an argument against it then reach for all of these traditional forms of language and just Mm. because you don't see it and just because the men that you know as far as you're aware don't say it doesn't mean it's not happening because i can tell you it comes from all sorts of different people comes from boys it comes from dads of daughters you know who proudly have well pictures uh, of them with their with their kids and their profiles it comes from i mean look it comes from tim blair at the daily telegraph i mean i should clarify that i don't i'm not i mean first i can't uh, i can't claim that something that you're claiming is happening doesn't happen and secondly when i say that i don't hear that language i don't mean that i never experience it because i find myself at the at the receiving end of a lot of hate online and on social media for various positions that i might have about things i mm. what i don't what i mean is that i don't hear those things as being uh um an acceptable part of the conversation in any powerful cultural way. They they would be laughed out of the room. I mean, every member of our cultural elite regards that kind of behavior towards women as being completely unacceptable. Mm, there are no I, I cocktail parties you can go to where that's acceptable. Like with the exception mm. of the shock shocks, right? The Tim Blairs, whose whole business model is to spew reactionary nonsense at everyone to the left of Genghis Khan. I don't see anyone in the opinion pages of forget about The Guardian, but even the Australian Rupert Murdoch's broadsheet, or I don't see anyone on the ABC or on Channel 9. I don't see anyone from Virginia Trioli to even Ben Fordham or anyone in mainstream media who calls women that kind of thing and gets away with it, and rightly so. But, but Josh, I mean, I don't, I don't expect that someone's going to go onto national TV and say, well, that's just because she's a dumb dog with daddy issues like that's not where that language and that discourse happens it certainly happens in places where people can um you know remove themselves from being accountable for it i mean you mentioned twitter before it's it's all across twitter because people don't have to have their faces to what it is that they say that's why it's so threatening for people when they are found out you know when they sort of their real life identities are uncovered um and whether or not the I mean, you say that you don't hear it being said at parties or whatever, or, you know, outside of some men who you don't associate with. But I don't think, again, that that means it's not happening. I mean, but also you've you've read a, a segment from a book that's articulating a very particular kind of method that is used to silence women, and that is one that hinges on a pretty dated i think and this is why it's no longer i mean maybe this is why it's dying out is that it's not really working on a lot of women anymore because they've become so used to it or they've become empowered to speak out against it or even just to laugh it as a laugh at it as i tell women to do but the idea that women's primary offering to the world is in the way that we look and in how well we perform and that's not like a radical feminist idea that's one that's that's very well kind of embraced by capitalism if anything so you know we know that women's primacy is located in the way that we look and as such that will be the first port of call for many people who can't articulate an argument to try and yell us down yeah yes that's true you certainly see more judgment of women's appearance and women's mannerisms like the you know everyone will recall that when hillary clinton was running for president people would accuse her of being shrill which is something you don't hear men being accused of and endless fixations on what they wear in a way that you don't yeah and the number of um 
criticisms of Kerry Chant. Is it Chant or Chant? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad Kerry you have Chant, a problem with oh, that as well. Anyway, she's the chief. She she's the chief health officer of New South Wales. Yeah. Um, you know the 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 grotesque things I've seen said, and the, just the pictorial memes made about her appearance, as if somehow because she fails to live up to people's, I don't know what, because they don't want to go home and wank over her, that somehow she's <laughs> unable to be a chief health officer or that the advice that she's offering is laughable in some way because, you know, you can zoom in on her upper lip and she's she's got, well, like me, she's got a little bit of hair <laughs> on her upper lip. Or even, you know, the, the idea that, ugh, and it's so embarrassing, I'm embarrassed for them making this argument, but that conservative women are somehow more attractive than left-wing women and that's why left-wing women are so angry and shrill all the time it's just because we're so ugly like that it's, it's not uncommon to see yes and they may be shock jocks but it's not uncommon to see that argument kind of sometimes these things don't have to be articulated in actual words but you know that that's what's going on mm. I guess maybe it's a maybe there is maybe you and I agree on everything apart from strategy because as you say that I I find myself nodding in agreement and then nonetheless I think of all of the times that I get attacked by the right and by the the left and I and my response is not to allow them to uh behave as representatives of the group that they think that they're representatives of it reminds me almost a little bit of after the, the Christchurch massacre, Jacinda Ardern gave this beautiful speech where she stood up and she said, you, speaking to the to the attacker, you think that you're defending us, that you are a representative of us against them. Nothing could be further from the, from the truth. Like, we are not with you. You are not a, re- a representative of us. You are not a defender of us. You are completely other. And in so doing, she removed the only thing that uh, a mass-murdering racist lunatic has to hang his hat on, which is he's the only person who's brave enough to actually do what's necessary to be done to protect Western civilization or white people or more Christianity or whatever it might be. And similarly, I think a shock jock or a sexist goes into the world with this kind of swaggering attitude of, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna articulate the things that all of those wimpy men like the Josh Stepses of the world just aren't willing to say, but I'm going to take up the mantle of manhood and I'm going to defend men against the onslaughts of the Clementine Fords of the world. And my most important, my most like urgent instinct there is to go, no, you fucking won't speak on mm. behalf of me. Like, I'll sideline you, I'll e- I'll dismiss you, I'll even maybe perhaps right now what I'm doing is kind of, you know, pretending that you exist less than you actually do because I want to live in a world in which it's possible to to sort of carve off the assholes and find a reconciliation and a consensus between all the reasonable people from all genders, sexes, mm. races and so on. And my worry as I listen to your audiobooks and read your books is like, Mm, not helping, like allowing mm. allowing the loudest, angriest, most assholey voices to to get what they want, which is to 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 perceive themselves as representatives of the whole, and you know, sort of handing them, I guess, the authority that I don't think they deserve. I mean, I think that you're making a flawed comparison between those two positions because the terrorist in Christchurch. Yes, Jacinda Ardern was very correct in saying you don't represent us, you're not defending us. I mean, leaving aside the fact that there are actually lots of reprehensible people who would have cheered on what he did that day and that is that has been supported by 
political positions and by politicians who've um, stoked anti-Muslim sentiment. He's not a shock jock. He's not paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to sit behind a microphone every day and disseminate those views to the public in the way that someone like Alan Jones was or John Laws was, or even Neil Mitchell still is, or Ben Fordham to a much sort of more polite degree gets to kind of stoke some sort of sense of traditional, um, traditional conservativeness or conservative ideals that you can't compare those two positions because it's all well and good for you to sit there and say, well, I don't, I don't accept you, this shock jock, insert whatever your name is, as being a representative of me. But unfortunately, they're being paid to be a representative for a lot of people. And the other question I would ask you is when you, and it's totally fine. I'm not, I'm not offended by you thinking that my methods aren't helping. I mean, it's certainly not the first time that I've been told that. But I would, I'm interested to know whether or not if you think that in the past few years things have changed and things have improved and that women are more empowered now to speak out and that society in general is becoming, particularly in Australia, becoming more um, articulate and cognizant of these issues and more willing to stand up and speak out against them, do you think that I have had anything to do with that? I'm not claiming credit for all of it, but do you think I have been part of that conversation that has enabled that to happen? Or do you think that my methods have actually prevented that from happening further or have been destructive to that? It's tricky. I don't know how to answer that, Clementine. Um, I suspect that it's got that we've gotten to a point at which it's counterproductive, actually, if I'm perfectly honest, uh, at which the, the... I mean, it sort of depends what... This reminds me a little bit of the arguments about how to respond to Trump in the States were. Like... Um, a lot of my friends in the States, most of my friends being like me, broadly on the left, um, you know, thought that the most pressing thing that they could do for the past five years was to expunge from civil society um, the half of the population who had been broadly sympathetic to Trump's uh, presidency. And if it were true that Donald Trump was going to usher in a Holocaust, the likes of which my you know grandmother was always worried about, then of course you would just have to do absolutely everything within your power to uh, to stand up against that, and to and it wouldn't really matter how many bridges you had to burn or how many innocent people got torched in the process. The most important, most pressing thing would be to prevent this man from wielding any power at all, and essentially to exclude anyone who might have voted for him from polite society at all to you know harass them whenever they came into restaurants to punch them in the face when you saw someone walking down the street with a make america great again cap on that would be completely legit just as it would be okay to kneecap a, a nazi um in 1930s germany and yet part of my concern i guess at the moment is that civil society is becoming so polarized and so hostile and we're becoming so hunkered down into our warring factions that we're at as at at least as great a risk of some kind of civil war some kind of informal ongoing mediocre civil war as we are of the forces of oppression and patriarchy and racism and sexism creating authoritarian uh, states so i don't quite know how to respond to your question i mean you i admire your 
passion and your commitment and your uh, aggression, frankly, because so many of the people who I admire throughout history have exhibited those same those same traits from civil rights leaders in the 1960s to the feminists who I admire and who I who I sort of shape my sense of feminism around. Um, but there, I do think there comes a point at which I suppose the the reconciliation instincts of a Martin Luther King or a, a Gandhi or a Mandela become to me more pressing than their revolutionary fervor. And so I'm not quite sure at what point of the knife edge we currently sit. Is that adequately sort of mm, equivocational for no, you? it's a really interesting response. I guess what that, something that that throws up for me is that oftentimes I think that, and people might say, well, might say, well this is a failure of your um messaging Clementine except that I think that um, people take away from me what they want to take away and I'm curious at your position on that because actually a lot of what I do or a lot of where my focus is is on encouraging men to be more aware of the ways in which expectations on them may have harmed them. You know, even just yesterday I shared a reshared something actually, which was this long uh, reflection written by a man named Nathan Simmons who wrote about the sexual grief he felt that he had, that, you know, at 43 years old he found himself crying because he realised that as a young man he was conditioned into this idea of what kind of sex he should be having and how sex ultimately was a performance for other men and that he feels like he spent the decades that he has done having sexual experiences being completely devoid of any kind of intimate connection to those experiences and that he he truly believes that he's lost something because of that and he he grieves for what it is that's been taken from him i'm having those conversations all the time and that's you know a large part of what boys will be boys about is not some angry treatise against men it does articulate some of the terrible things that men and that structural powers that favour men have done to women and to other men. But it's also about the loss that men suffer when their connection to these things is taken away and how, you know, we need to we need to envisage a better world for men. When you when you say that you your methods are unhelpful, it's not it's certainly not an argument I haven't heard before. But I'm always just very interested in whether or not that's coming from and uh, I guess a stereotype of me and a superficial understanding of what my work is concerned with and, and the very different kinds of approaches that I take. People think of me and they think, oh, she's just that angry feminist who says provocative things online. And I actually think that that's a very unfair characterization of me. And and I feel yeah, like it's that's, pretty lazy, actually. That's, that, that is fair. I'll, I'll cop that because you are not a monolith uh, and I wouldn't be talking to you if you were. Uh, so I guess the I guess you, we can think about our public personas as being, um, you know, comprising at least several parts. And the, the, what I was talking about there was, was I was referring to uh, to your question, which I think was pointing to these, the, the aggressive um, uh, kill all men Clementine Ford from uh, social media, not so much the nuanced, uh, you know, scholar mm. of feminism who comes out when you actually read I mean, your books. Has Twitter ever been nuanced? <laughs> <laughs> Look, and I will own that there are things that I've said in the past. I've never shied away from that. 
things that I wouldn't say now and that, you know, maybe were born out of um, my age, um, my, the, the, you know, when social media started, when we really, I mean, we have to remember that these things are very recent, you know, it's mm. really been the last 10 years that we've evolved through social media to have, I think, having more nuanced conversations now. But there was a particular trend that during the kill all men period in particular, um, which I wouldn't tweet now. Um, and I mean, I don't tweet. I've, I realized that Twitter was a very bad and unhealthy place for me. I think it's a bad and unhealthy place for a lot of it's people. It's horrible. It's By the way, I just, went on, I just went online and I'm blocked, so I can't even see your tweets anyway. I don't know what I must have done at some stage. Oh, but probably, I, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, just... I was like, why can't I see? Oh, oh. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I don't know. Maybe I was going through a day that day, but I, I, I don't really use it anymore. My account's still there, but I haven't. I very, very occasionally will go on and retweet something for work. You know, like I might retweet some things about the book, but I'm not having conversations on Twitter anymore, partly because I find it a very difficult place to really have those conversations because if you've got numerous people replying to certain threads and things get lost, but also because I realized that every time I went on there, I was being primed to defend myself and primed to attack. Mm. And it, it leads to you making very poor choices about yeah. how you articulate yourself. And... um but, you know, the Kill All Men era where I know that there are screenshots of collages that people have made of me saying things. Firstly, mostly I'm responding to people who say things. You know, the, the tweets I'm responding to are never included in them. But mostly it's they're very hyperbolic. I mean, very crude humour. But, yes, very basic. I'm not saying it's clever. But hyperbolic responses to people saying things like, you just hate all men or you won't stop till all men are destroyed or, you know, a reduction of the feminist argument and the feminist um the feminist project to well obviously it's just because you hate men I and mean, it's just silly it's it's laughing at them for this silliness but there was also a period of time and i think that this is sometimes what people don't understand as well is that in the same way that memes work and in the same way that that vocabulary kind of can sometimes reflect a particular moment in pop culture so too is the same of Twitter, that that was a period in time where everyone was being very ironic and very kind of like, you know, those, it wasn't uncommon to see those things said. And mm. did I join in on a, a basic crude comedic meme? Yes. Um, I mean, this is one not, of the, again, I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, it was very clever, but. No, I get it. I mean, I've been there as well. I've done things, you know, there are, there are tweets that people pull out of, uh, from me completely out of context and, uh, you know, now treat as if I've transgressed some, some tripwire that I should have known about at the time. But actually I was tweeting it in 2014 and mm. the mores actually were different seven years ago about whatever it was, whatever provocative joke I was making. And Twitter was supposed to be a place where you would like provoke and make ridiculous jokes. It wasn't like this. It wasn't, it wasn't like I, I was issuing a press release that I was supposing everyone was going to take exactly. seriously in 160 characters. Um, do you think that's, I mean, let's just pause there on social media for a moment because I think it's, it's an interesting like what impact is that having on the tenor and the quality of our conversations about things? I think that they can be incredible tools. You know, there are people who, even on Twitter, there are people who love academic Twitter, although mind you, <laughs> it is quite funny sometimes to look at the drama that's going on in like spaces that you wouldn't think have drama. 
you know, the things that I've heard about craft Twitter. Well, that's, Go on. I haven't even heard that. Funny. Tell me. What is it? That's pretty funny. I mean, just, you know, um, fights in the crafting community. I, ca- I can't tell you what those <laughs> fights are because I'm not in the crafting community. But when you hear something like that, you're like, that checks out. Mm. That checks out. It's very people's front of Judea. Yes. Um, yes. And I feel like people's front of Judea really kind of, and for anyone who hasn't seen The Life of Brian, it's a moment in the, but even I'm then Life of Brian I'll, is a movie that has I'll, a lot of. I'll play, I'll play talking? it. I'll drop it in right, I'll drop it in You'll right drop here. You'll drop it in. Yeah. noses, ocelot spleens. Got any nuts? I haven't got any nuts, sorry. I've got wren's livers, badger spleens. No, no, no. noses? I don't want that Roman rubbish. Why don't you sell proper food? Proper food? Yeah, not those rich imperialist tidbits. Oh, don't blame me. I didn't ask to sell this stuff. All right, bag of otters noses in. Make it two. Two. Thanks, Rich. Are you the Judean people's front? Fuck off. What? Judean people's front. Well, the people's front of Judea. Judean people's front. <laughs> Wankers. Can I join your group? Nah, piss off. I didn't want to sell this stuff. It's only a job. I hate the Romans as much as anybody. Are you sure? Oh, dead sure. I hate the Romans already. Listen, if you wanted to join the PFJ, you'd have to really hate the Romans. I do. Oh, yeah? How much? A lot. Right, you're in. Listen. The only people we ate more than the Romans are the fucking Judean people's front. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And the Judean popular people's front. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Split. Split. And the people's front of Judea. Yeah. Splitters. What? The people's front of Judea. Splitters. We're the people's front of Judea. Oh. I thought we were the popular front. People's front. Whatever happened to the popular front? He's over there. But The Life of Brian is a movie, obviously, that has things in there that now you would never, and I don't even want to say you would never get away with, but you shouldn't get away with. There are some jokes in there that we have distinctly moved on from finding funny. And that's the same of, you know, things that were happening as recently as 2014 on Twitter. We have privileged and benefited from, we have been privileged by and we have benefited from the incredible conversations that activists and advocates from marginalised communities have been forcing on the public through whatever means necessary to, you know, articulate things like casual transphobia is not acceptable, casual racism is not acceptable, um, we don't use the R word anymore because it's ableist. These are, these are recent understandings that we've come to and I would argue that what we need sometimes is those big sledgehammer moments. We need someone like me or like any other activist that does things that people say of their methods, well, I just don't think they're very helpful, to be standing at the side of the pool and throwing a giant boulder into it mm. to cause, you know, rather than pl- gently placing a pebble at the edge and saying, excuse me, could we please have a nuanced and kind conversation? Those conversations can happen later and maybe that's what we're moving towards now, but we need the initial bandage to be ripped off or the, the whatever. I'm, I mean, I'm a very big fan of metaphor. We need the boil <laughs> to be lanced and all the pus to spill out before we can start gently tending to the wound. 
Yeah, you just don't want the pus to spill out in such a way that it infects other part of the other parts of the leg and becomes gangrenous and the whole leg falls off. Well, that's true, but I mean, I don't think that that's what's happening. I think it's very interesting the perspectives that we come from, and and I would say as well, with all kindness meant, that I think that one of the reasons why you're able to take that position is, well, particularly when it comes to sexism, is that for you it's largely theoretical. You can go home at the end of the day and not think about it and you cannot worry about you you have the luxury of being able to think about whether or not methods should be gentle or not because ultimately you're not really experiencing the full weight of them that's it for the free podcast feed if you'd like to hear the entire episode go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com/subscribe